Those of this show are not experts. All information discussed and debated on the show is publicly available, and the opinions of the hosts are not fact. We apologize for any offense you may take and discourage any message of hate, violence, and discrimination, but such messages may be repeated from reportedly original sources for purposes of debate and discussion. We encourage your involvement in the discussion, but do not support any similar aforementioned message. You're listening to American Minutes. Look who's back from vacation, Mr. Nash, looking all bright and tanned with your uh, with your Hawaiian shirt. But all right, all right, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back on the clock <laughs> after like after a week hiatus, hiatus, hi- hiatus. We in hiatus port? Hiatus. Where are we? Hi- hiatus. Um, hiatus, hiatus. Uh, we are back for another fun-filled episode talking all about housing. We're gonna do a super duper deep dive into the current state of the housing market, but where would I be without my partner in crime, Mr. Nash Moore? Rested and refreshed. Nash, how is Disney, my friend? I love you. I missed you. Easy, breezy, beautiful cover girl. I gotta say, Disney was incredible because right now, it's only like 50% capacity, so the parks, there's hardly anybody in there. The lines are tiny. It's comfortable. Great time. Great time. Oh, God damn, Nash, you make me so jealous. I went, to, I, I vacationed in Delaware. All right, but it, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. Delaware was a great time, but people liked Joe Biden too much. I was a little uncomfortable. Uh, I wish to be expected. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just Josh and I'm Josh and Joe Biden. People can like you. It's totally fine. Uh, but actually, this, this story has nothing to do with him this week. We are not really talking about Joe Biden at all. We are talking about the current state of the housing market and what it means if Wall Street is to become your brand new landlord. So this this isn't necessarily a a a new development. This isn't a new story, but I think this is a good time to talk about it um, because now the wheels are going to start setting in motion. Now, Nash, we've been talking about the looming housing crisis for the past yeah. year, year plus on this podcast. And it's like, what are they going to do about it? What are they going to do about it? They being the government and... The answer is they're kind of just going to let this play out. And by letting it play out, Wall Street is just buying everything. Yeah. And I think that was something that we had brought up before. Um, I know I've brought it up before in other forms. was just how it's a matter of pushing people of lower income out. And um, essentially an extensive gentrification type deal. But I think we're going to get more into it. Yeah, like there, there's a lot to go into. I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. Our stories for this, uh, for this, this, the sources for the stories for me to say, is uh, Jimmy Dore, <laughs> The Wall Street Journal, The Federalist, Vox, and Breaking Points with Crystal and Sager. Um, I said it right this time, Nash. I'm very proud of myself. Um, yeah, they left the, they left the hill, so they have a new show now called Breaking Points. And yep. it's they're completely independent, which is just, it's so much better than they were doing on there. They're doing the exact same stuff, but they're just not corporatized anymore. They don't listen to corporate overlords, completely crowdfunded. Um, honestly, Nash, probably what this podcast is going to end up being, um, it pretty much is just, you know, funded by our fans. That's how it's going to have to be because we're not going to get any support from Google, YouTube, or they're the overlords. So, <laughs> sorry. But, um, gotta do it ourselves. So the current housing market. So let's let's just go into it. Most of this at the at, at the front is the Wall Street Journal. So 
from the Wall Street Journal, from individuals with smartphones and a few thousand dollars to pensions and private equity firms with billions, yield-chasing investors are snapping up single-family homes to rent out or flip. They're, com- they're competing for houses with ordinary Americans who are armed uh, with the cheapest mortgage financing ever and driving up home prices. Now, um, so that's what that's what's happening. Now, some of these is a good thing. Like, all right, people, people, individual people buying up homes and flipping them, that's not new. That's something that's been going on for a yeah. long time if they can actually do it. You know, um, investors buying up homes, even, even um, private equity firms buying up homes isn't necessarily new, but this isn't necessarily normal times, Nash. So I guess explain to me really the idea behind is buying houses in general, buying multiple houses, if you will. Well, yeah, because typically um, I think for the most like type of like common man, you know, everyday average American, um, a lot of people, you know, will save up money to buy a smaller house and then do exactly what you said, flip it. I don't think, I think it's more common to flip it than it is to rent it just because you, you put all the money into renovating it. And then it's sort of like, all right, big payout, just sort of wipe your hands of it. And I think that's, that's a pretty healthy way to get, you know, a alternate source of income for people. I don't think it really damages too much. I don't think it, probably doesn't damage anything if a family is doing it that's not new so so what's what's the difference between like a regular average american who can afford a home buying a home or two homes or even your wealthy american buying three or four homes as opposed to private equity firms with billions like how like why is how how can one be good and one be bad well, it's it's definitely the scale because buying one house and making it nicer isn't going to drive up the property value of the neighboring houses by a ton. But being able to do that to an entire neighborhood obviously is. And um, probably the biggest thing to keep in mind, I would imagine, is sort of wholesale, being able to buy wholesale goods is always cheaper than buying it, you know, single, mm-hmm. a single unit. So it's exactly like why you go to, uh, what is it, like BJ's or Costco or something like that. It's because you buy bulk and it's always cheaper in bulk. Mm -hmm. And so if you have the resources to buy, you know, the equipment to upgrade more houses, it's going to be even cheaper compared to the one family that's putting more money into renovating a single house. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the biggest thing. It's very, it's, it's a bit of unfair economics. So we have, we have like uh, real estate firms and consulting firms kind of looking into this and they were quoted in the in Wall Street Journal saying, quote, you now have permanent capital competing with a young couple trying to buy a house. That's from John Burns, who's eponymous, E-P-O-N-Y-M-O-U-S, what's this word? Eponymous? Eponymous? Eponymous real estate. That's a great word. Eponymous real estate consulting firm estimates that in many of the top nations, in the nation's top markets, roughly one of every five houses sold is bought by someone who never moves in. That's going, quote, that's going to make U.S. housing permanently more expensive. So people are buying these houses Mm -hmm. for no one, for that they're never going to move into, i.e. to rent them. 
to make their money back and then some. Um, quote, limited housing supply, low rates, a global reach for yield, and what we're calling the institutionalization of real estate investors has set the stage for another speculative investor-driven home price bubble, the firm concluded. The firm expects home prices to climb 12% this year on top of last year's 11% rise and increase Jeez. at least 6% in 2022, a period of appreciation reminiscent of 2004 and 2005. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Hey, hot potato. So if, this is, if they're comparing this to 2004, 2005, that means Nash... We need a hashtag, hashtag, a brief history of the 2008 housing bubble. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that boom (laughs) was different, fueled by loose leading, uh, loose lending, lending that enabled individuals to speculate on home prices by racking up mortgages they could repay only if home prices kept climbing. The money party, uh, ended, a few years later when home prices stopped rising. The ensuing crash wiped out $11 trillion in U.S. household wealth and brought, uh, and brought the global financial system to the brink of collapse. And actually, Nash, that brings us to chart number one, which is home prices year-over-year oh. oh, uh, year growth. Back from 1982 up until now. As you can see, you know, 2000, they said they're going up, and then pfft, 2008, <laughs> <laughs> they just took... They took a free fall. And, you a know, bit of you, a housing you crisis started up again. in 2007, don't you see? <laughs> like, like, have we learned nothing? Um, no. And that was actually uh, pretty well speculated. Um, in what book was it? Was it Too Big to Fail? It may have been that. I think it was that book. Whereas essentially the same, they, the author speculated the exact same thing was going to happen again that happened because nothing actually changed to fix it. Yeah. Um, the, the banks allowed this loose lending to happen, um, were given money to bail out just because if they weren't, you know, the economy would have tanked even harder. They did it under the assumption that they would stabilize the lending a bit more so that it wouldn't happen, but there's never any written agreement um, because the it's it's that gets into a politically tricky issue with how you want to think about it. Because some people blame the U.S. government for doing that because do. they the banking the banks got off scot free. But also, it's important to consider that if nothing had happened, it would have been much much worse. It probably would. It you know was, what? You're probably right. It probably would have been cut <laughs> in It probably would have been much much worse. But the recovery, that the inevitable recovery would have been so much better and it would have it would have stayed longer. Like now, they essentially just use the term kick the can down the road. At least some people speculate um, that they're just, they're just making the eventual crash, which is going to happen or potentially going to happen now, way, way, way worse than what it would have been back in 2008. Well, see, I, I'm not sure about that because I think – you, you're assuming that there would have been something to salvage or there would have been enough to salvage. I don't think I'm on the boat where I don't think there would have been enough to salvage if those banks had gone under for the U S economy. Um, it would have been much better if they had given those banks an agreement to actually, you know, stabilize the lending so that people don't buy houses that they can't afford. Yeah. Um, but 
they had they genuinely had to do something. And it wasn't as we're seeing now, it wasn't the best thing to do. But without it, I think it would have gotten so bad that we would be living in a much, 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 much different country. Mm-hmm. Well, so in 2008, it crashed. Um, it was really bad for a while. And then financiers, 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 it's a great word, financiers, uh, stepped in starting in 2011 <laughs> and gobbled up foreclosed homes at steep discounts. They dispatched buyers yes. to courthouse auctions with duffel bags of cash. Wow. <laughs> a whole duffel bag. Uh, smartphones <laughs> and tablet computers enabled them to orchestrate the land grab and manage tens of thousands of far-flung properties thereafter. Um, it accounted for about a third of sales in some markets and setting a floor for falling prices. So essentially, like, they bought up all the houses, and I guess that, that saved the market? Is that, what I'm, is that what I'm getting here, Nash? Um, it just meant that they owned it. But, I mean, yeah, it, it kind of did because now you're putting money in other pockets, but... Yeah, like, it's like it's set a, um, it's set a floor, which means to me, it to me means it's it stopped falling. It, we could go back up now. Like, we hit bottom. Yeah. Um, yes. So, so, strung by losses, banks made it harder for regular home buyers to get a mortgage. Millions of Americans went underwater, owning more, owing more on their mortgages than their homes were worth and unable to move. Home rental firms, in, including in, Innovation Homes Incorporated and Americans Homes for Rent, the number four, thrived. Renting suburban homes proved to be so profitable that landlords hit the open market and added properties at full price once foreclosures dried up. Many, many now build houses explicitly to rent. And that brings us to today with COVID. Yes. So that's what happened in 2008, and that's pretty much how it was salvaged. Now, financiers bought and, and got up the houses. So, but, but who who were those people who bought the houses? Was it wasn't the banks? Was it was it just everyday like people who could afford it? Because it wasn't like wasn't wealth funds. Like who bought? No, I don't like think who, it was. Like who bought the houses I, back in 2008, 2011? Excuse me. I think I think it had more to do with the banks buying them. So the banks bought the houses. Yes, but they didn't. I buy, but so. they probably didn't buy them to rent. They probably bought them to sell. Yeah, they bought it just to hold on to it because nobody else is going to buy it because nobody else could afford it. Okay, so let's compare and contrast that to today with what's projected to happen with with Wall Street <laughs> buying them. Oh boy, this is going to be fun. So, COVID. It how, will. Did, how did yeah, how did COVID <laughs> impact the market? Uh, the coronavirus pandemic sparked a race for home office spaces and yards. Occupancy rates reached record reached records, and rents are rising with home prices. The ecosystem of companies that service, finance, and mimic the mega landlords is booming. Uh, Burns, like I just spoke about earlier, counted more than 200 companies and investment firms in the house hunts. Computer-assisted flipper. Open Door Technologies Incorporated, money managers including J.P. Morgan Asset Management and BlackRock Incorporated, platforms such as Fundrise and Roofstock that buy and arrange for the management of rentals on behalf of individuals, and Builder LGI Homes Incorporated, uh, which now reports wholesale home sales to bulk buyers um, in its quarterly results. So that's, that's who's buying the housing market now. 
right? Yeah. Notice they didn't say like people. <laughs> yeah, or like groups of people. <laughs> right? It's 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 200 companies and investment firms. Why aren't people buying it? Because they weren't bailed out. They were given $1,400 checks by Joe Biden, $600 and $1,200 by Trump. That can't buy you a house. Oh, Daffy, you didn't buy a house with your $1,400? No, I, I, I didn't buy a house. But I, didn't, I, I couldn't have bought a house with my unemployment either. So, like, and people weren't working. So, like, that, that that's the main difference between 2008 and now is that Wall Street's going to be your landlord. And the people who you probably don't want to be your landlord is going to be your landlord. Now, we're about to break down everything that's wrong with that from the perspective of the Federalist, um, as well as, I think, mainly the, mainly the Federalist, as well as this, 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 this Twitter thread, which Jimmy Dore broke down excellently. But then we're going to get into the flip side of what, what Vox had to say and where, they, where they're right and where they're wrong. So this is, this is the Federalist take. Now, Nash... Is the Federalist mainly like a right-wing outlet? Are they known for being a right-wing outlet? I don't know. I believe they I'm, are. I think that I think they are. Um, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. If you want to continue, I'll make sure right now. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure. Like I forget that it was Blaze. It was Blaze I was looking at where different stories like protect conservative voices. I was like, well, at least you're telling me you're biased. So the, the Federalist, uh, the author is Joy Pullman. Um, now, Joy had some hot takes in here. So these viewpoints are not necessarily something I agree with, but they're worth mentioning. Okay. Go ahead. Well, before you continue these points, <laughs> uh, mediabiasfactcheck.com. Uh, which I use a lot for so you know, so you know it's uh, whenever we look up for when we look up sources because with a name like that, <laughs> and they rank um, the Federalist as extremely right, and their factual reporting ranking is mixed. All right. Well, good thing this is an op-ed. If you want, well, just so everybody can have sort of like a bit of a standard Fox news is considered right, but not in the extreme and their factual reporting is also in the mix. So the federalist is a more extreme version of Fox news in, in simplistic terms, you know, with some of these viewpoints, this woman had, I, I totally get that. So take, take that with the grain of salt. This, this is where I got my information. I take it with the grain of salt. So here we go. Uh, by Joy Pullman. Um, this is a direct consequence of the Fed printing so much money and long encouraging debt by keeping interest rates so low for so long that investors are looking for better assets. Our government has, has long privileged debt over savings in the large part because that makes it easier for the government def to, to deficit spend, making debt less costly to Congress. So normal people essentially get punished for saving because Congress won't stop spending. Nash, what do you think of that hot take? I mean, you have to you'd have to actually look at how much of that is factual, but it's pretty much correct. Whereas if more money gets printed, the money that you have is worth less. Yes. 
That's just as, like, as simply put as it is. But it, yeah, it, to, for that to be the case, you have to actually look at how much has actually been printed. And the Fed printed, printed, printed trillions <laughs> last year. They printed <laughs> trillions. In fact, this still printing. Um, now our government has long privileged debt over savings. That is so true. Uh, I believe uh, our friend of the show, Jared Laverne, you know, CEO of the Biggest Podcast Solutions, um, said use the term perceived wealth over actual wealth. Is it's just like it makes sense, but in the stupidest way imaginable. This is how much you could be worth, let alone you're in so much debt. Like we are a debtor nation. We really are. Yeah. I mean, is it, but isn't most of the world a like a debtor nation? Um, yeah. Well, kind of, they kind of have to be. Debt goes hand in hand with gains. Mm, that's true. But no, to more, some aspect. I no mean, more, no more people essentially. Like, getting... one, well, go ahead. Huh? No, go ahead. Well, I'm just saying, like, if you sell, all right, if you sell guacamole, right? I do love guac. The point, the point where you buy avocados, you're in debt. But you've got a bunch of avocados, so you don't actually have money till you sell the guacamole. So that's where it kind of you're almost always one or the other, right? And the guacamole surpasses that debt, and then some. Yeah, that's that's the hope. That's the hope. That is the hope. But okay, so so we reward people by putting them in debt as long as they don't fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a that's a very opinionated way to say it. <laughs> Your reward debt. <laughs> All right. So um, so but, she, so yeah. she goes on to say, since the government quietly taxes away your savings through inflation, people and institutions who want to put money away for future use or just grow their assets are forced into riskier and more disruptive behavior. Thus. Mega dollar money asset managers and private equity firms are snapping up millions of homes at inflated prices because government pro prolific pro, prolific Nash, what's this word? I highlighted it. Prolificacy. Prolificacy has made it harder for them to secure a prof, yield. Profligacy. Prof, profligacy. Profligacy. So Nash. Prof, uh, profligacy. These two bullet points. I put Nash, can you translate in the notes? Because I know you know things. <laughs> Since the government <laughs> quietly taxes away your savings. Okay, so people have less money from the money they've been saving up to buy um, a house, whereas a mega million dollar corporation or a billion dollar corporation has, still has enough money to buy stuff because they've got money in the millions and billions. It makes it easier for them to buy something especially when you're buying a bunch of them, as we said earlier, right. as I said earlier. Um, and uh, the average buyer doesn't have a chance at hell because their money's worth less. That's, and that, and that, is what, that is what's happening. That is what's happening. But it seems to me that Joy Pullman is saying that the government is doing that on purpose. That... I, might be, I would I, need... I may be putting, I may evidence, be putting words but, in her mouth, but... Like the, it seems to be the insinuation. Yeah, that the, the government. I think I agree. Like the government wants to keep you poor so the mega billionaires can buy it up before you. 
Yes, because if you're going to do it, now would be the best time for that exact thing to happen. Yeah. So Because it's kind of like, what's the point of getting a $1,200 or $1,400 stimulus check if in a few months that's worth, you know, only $1,200 yeah, or it's, it's worth $1,100? Like, it's worth 15% less because of the inflation. Yeah, like yeah. that seems like you would stop printing more money at that point because mm-hmm. you're kind of taking away what you just gave to everybody. Right. So this government caused financial disaster waiting to happen. This this woman has to be a libertarian. This is very libertarian vibes. This government caused financial disaster waiting to happen won't only have financial effects, it will have social effects. One causing fewer people to be homeowners and effectively taking away wealth from those who do manage to buy a home, but a government bubbled uh, to buy a home, but at a government bubbled price. So even if you do buy a home, it's, it's, it's overinflated because of the government. Yeah. So it's like they're making it, they're incentivizing people not even to buy homes because it's not worth it because you won't get your return. You'll still be in debt. Yeah. And twelve hundred dollars doesn't that sound a lot closer to like a rent payment than a? It's not even not even my investment. rent payment. <laughs> I haven't paid twelve hundred dollars in rent in almost three years. Um, giant asset management firm driving up home prices forces more people to rent who would own if the prices weren't so inflated. It also increases the ratio of renters to owners. In addition, government rules require those who own numerous properties to reserve a percentage for federally subsidized low-income renters, thereby forcibly interjecting into communities people whose behavior generally is far worse than those than those of their neighbors, since nowadays poverty and antisocial behavior is correlated in the United States. Now, when she talks about the social aspects, <laughs> warning, I do not agree with everything this woman says, but the merit of what she says, <laughs> there, there, is, there is probably some kernels of truth in here, but she's taking it to the extremes in my humble opinion. So, warning. Yeah. Um, but she, I, mean, I think that's a very fair warning to give. Um, government rules require those who own numerous properties to reserve percentage for federally subsidized low-income renters. So, if you own property, you have to save some of it for poor people. Is that what I'm reading there? Um, yes. I wonder if yes. that's the same yes. for the hedge funds or, or the, uh, th- I wonder if that's the same for, uh, uh, JP Morgan. I wonder if they have a clause that doesn't, they don't have to do that. I wonder, I bet. That's a real tariff. It would all right come there. down. It, it would all come down to the definition of low income renters. Okay. So now, now we get into, uh, the difference between owning and renting. Again, from the Federalists, some hot takes. The neighborhoods who rent are averagely, are on average, worse neighborhoods. They tend to their yards and homes much less, that being renters. They, meaning renters, make more noise. They, meaning renters, get the police call to their homes more often for everything from domestic violence to raucous parties to drug busts to leaving their car parked in a street in the way of everyone else. Now... Okay, I, I, you had me at, you had me at tending to their yards, and they make, you have me to t- the rest, the rest is debatable. It depends on the person. 
in my opinion. Um, owning makes people take responsibility and feel more investment in their community. I agree with that. That's true. Renters are less invented and more easily detached. I agree with that. When more money and commitment are on the line, in the aggregate, people will behave better. So this entire financial dynamic also ruins more people's quality of life and degrades social standards for more people. Uh, she goes on to complain about um, their neighbor, like her own personal neighbors being unmarried couples who fight, meth heads, etc., etc. No need to go into details, but there's some kernel of truth into what she says there. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, I think it's a pretty accepted idea that if you do not own something, you're probably not going to care for it as much in just general terms and in vague understanding of things. I think that's probably true. Yeah. Um, I'd love to see more statistical evidence on that. I, I would, I would as well. <laughs> I would as well. But, she didn't, I mean, she I, didn't provide I, any, <laughs> but I, I think that's like totally accurate because a lot of those responsibilities fall onto the, whoever owns the property. Yeah, of course it does. Of course it does. And that Nash is a key point. Whoever owns the property. Now, we're going to get into it in a little bit, but how well do you think Morgan Stanley is going to take care of their properties? Um, it depends on the depends on uh, which is more profitable, so probably not very well. It depends on the lease, really. So, however, where individual landlords and local real estate companies own most rental units, there are more ways to address such situations. So... She's saying where if a individual landlord or a small real estate, a local real estate company like the one I'm in currently in Hoboken own more rental units, there are ways for the community to, adju to uh, adjust to these situations and fight back. You can look up the names of the local property records to call and complain. You, you and your neighbors can quietly organize to enforce each city ordinance or a problem neighbor that ultimately or or a problem neighbor that ultimately results in their renter or his sublord moving on. A slumlord. Wow, she used the word slumlord. What a bitch. You can lobby your city <laughs> council to apply higher standards to landlords and neighbors' nuisances so problems are more restrained. Um, that's true. Pretty much you can just be an asshole of a neighbor and you can force the hands of local landlords. Now, in some situations, I think it's totally fine. and others, you know, it's to your own discretion. But at least as a community, you can do something about it. But if a giant trans, uh, transnational corporation owns a house, they won't give two hoots about their negative effects on the place they live. For them, it's just a numbers game, like you said earlier, Nash. Um, and let the renters, they rent to they uh they rent to they have close to zero they rent so they have close to zero stakes in the communities which they are uh, hovering up homes now that's true i totally believe that's true now in a new york times yeah, magazine I mean, well, go ahead i mean that we saw that um we saw that happen with uh i think it was kushner what what did he own i think it was kushner um, that exact same type of thing was happening in properties that he owned and rented. Yeah, this didn't give a fuck about him. Now, yeah, that exact scenario. There were uh, examples cited, I believe it was from The Federalist, but um, in a New York <laughs> Times Magazine article last year, it's from the same article, uh, Francesca Mari, M-A-R-I, documented the egregious harms perpetrated by the landlords of struggling Americans. 
One man's house was sold to a private equity firm, which forced their tenant to take on responsibilities usually reserved to the homeowners like mold uh, remedi- remediation, landscaping, and CO2 detectors. Another woman's rental home was infested with rats and cockroaches. Many more stories abound, um, abound about countless fees that threats of dealing with a giant equity with whom the renter inherently has a large asymmetry of power and information. Now, that doesn't mean individual landlords are better, but they are damn sure easier to sue. That's a Will Tarashik original. Yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of times it does mean that they're better because they don't, you know, if it's like a family that's saved up to buy this property to rent it out to somebody, I just, that, you know, the interactions are going to be much more like human because you're actually going, you're probably going to see that landlord a lot. You know, that's going to be a person, not just the building owner entity. Yeah. <laughs> In that case. So I think it, it I think it does force, um, more respect, I would imagine. I mean, and look, and look, true, like, look at this, right? Like, look at, look at your average lease. You can tell if it's written up by a regular person. You can tell who owns a home, who's just getting it done because they need a legal document. You can tell, like, there's room for negotiation. You can tell if a local um, firm wrote it up because it's more legalese. You know, you need you should have someone look at it, but it's overall, it's generally fair. Imagine what BlackRock's lease is going to look like. It's probably going to be 300 pages. Yeah. Right? Where they're going to put it in writing that you, the tenant, are responsible for everything. I would bet I would bet my house that I don't own on that would be the case. And even, <laughs> yeah, it'll even probably, like, they'll even definitely be that or something similar. State state by state, you have renter's rights. You have a bill of rights as a as a renter. But even with those rights, good luck suing a private equity firm who has a team of lawyers to pick apart your argument. They don't even pay taxes. All right, they can get out. They can get away with not paying, not paying for the things in your house either. Like they're not going to be good landlords. They're just not. Yeah, no, exactly. It makes it a lot harder to attack somebody when they have that type of uh, money behind that type of capital behind them. You can't do anything. Whereas if it's if you've got a bad landlord in that, and you know, which you know, it's happened to me. It's probably happened to you, Daffy. Oh, his house was illegal. The house was illegal as hell. (laughs) Three of them, in fact. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You've got somebody that is a landlord that is just doing illegal practices, and so you know you have a lot more wiggle room to actually combat them on it. Um, Just because they may not even want to take it to court at all, because they'll they know that they'll lose because they're breaking the law. You know, so you won't even have to take it there. You can just be like, "Hey, man, let's just be reasonable here." Whereas in this case, is you can't say, "Hey, man," because it's a corporate entity. They're just going to be like, "Up, nope, you're out. Try to sue us. We dare you." Yep. Yep. All right, and that that wraps up for the federalist section of this story. Moving on. All right, now we got um, the section on this Twitter thread, which I'm going to pull up a lot of tweets here. So, what does this mean for ordinary Americans? It means nobody will own anything. So, 
let's go up. Let's start with this. Let's start with this Twitter thread. Um, this is from Cultural Husbandry. Interesting name. At I can't see that. It's too small on my screen. It's at APN something. Oh, you can see it. You I can, can read it. Yeah, what is it? A philosophy. A P H I L O S O P H A E. Thread. You want me to read it? No, I, I, I have it all in my notes. So, BlackRock is buying every single family house. They call out BlackRock in particular in this thread. So, BlackRock is buying every single family home they can find, paying 20 to 50% above asking price and outbidding normal home buyers. Why are corporations, pension funds, and property investment groups buying? What are they buying? They're buying. They're buying entire neighborhoods out from under the middle class. Let's take a look. Homes are popping up on MLS and going under contact a contract within a few hours. BlackRock, among others, are buying up thousands of new homes in new neighborhoods. So why? So who is BlackRock? Only the world's largest asset manager and leading proponent of the Great Reset. They're looking to redistribute, get this, $120 trillion, the entire wealth of the world's middle class and poor, and poor combined several times over. All right, so let's take, a, let's take a pause there. Nash, your thoughts on those opening remarks? Um, it has to be, the important thing to note here is that for it to be a big issue, it has to happen on a massive scale. If they do it to one town, one small town, it will be probably bad there, yes. But also, if it's just one town, it doesn't really have that much threat of spreading. Mm-hmm. An important thing to note, though, I think with the prices, people will probably just be like, oh, you know, what about the person selling their house? Clearly, that's helping them. Um, <clears throat> sort of. Because you have to think about this. Their house, you know, if it gets bought for 20 to 50%, which is huge, above asking price. Huge. Um, what does that really mean? Because the cor- for a corporate entity like, uh, what is it, Blackwell, Black BlackRock, Rock, BlackRock. For a corporate entity like BlackRock, because they're buying so many of those houses around that price, that is minuscule to them. But for the individual homeowner, if your house gets bought at that price, well, that means that you can really only buy a house that's the exact same as the one you bought unless you completely move out of town and, like, you have to move well far away from where you just were. Well, here's the thing, Nash, and this is something we, we I cover a lot um, <clears throat> for my day job, the housing market, where people aren't selling their homes right now because they can't afford to buy a new one or they exactly or they can't find a new one to buy in time to sell the house so they're they're stuck they're stuck even if they uh, want to yeah. sell and take advantage of this opportunity they're stuck cuz they can't go anywhere no no that's that this exact same scenario has happened to my sister who's been trying to buy a house for a few months now mm-hmm. and every time uh, she puts an offer, somebody comes back and has given an offer that's well above the asking price of the house. Mm-hmm. It's happened to every single one she's tried to get. Mm-hmm. 
and she wants to buy a house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, and even even if you, even if you, even if you get a house, like you know, a friend of the show, Joe Malandrino, um, just bought a just bought a house, and she's having trouble getting furniture. She's been in there for almost a month now, a little maybe a little over a month, and her furniture just started coming today because of the worker shortage. They they they, they her and her husband this days can't get new furniture. That that's crazy. So the and, how yeah the, the, how, the how, how shortages shortages are going to come into play a lot later. I know that. Yeah. So let's continue on with this thread. Um, single family rentals. Now your potential to your potential lower to middle class homeowner is positioned to be a permanent renter. This matters because the lower and middle class owning a home is uh, is the most major part of any financial success. In future up and uh, future up of mobility, this is wealth redistribution, and it, it and it ain't rich people's wealth who's getting redistributed. It's normal American middle class, salt of the earth wealth heading into the hands of the world's most powerful entities and individuals to a traditional financial vehicle gone forever. Now, I think I think this person is a hundred percent on the money. It's it's well known. That the main way to gain generational wealth means not just your wealth for you, wealth for your kids and your kids' kids and, your, and so on and so on, is to own a home, is to own land, is to own property. Like my grandmother owned three houses. Three houses. And when she died, her estate, my mom and her sister became rather wealthy, enough to retire. That's not going to exist anymore with this Project it's this is projected or predicted not to exist anymore with this going on. Nash, what do you think? No, that's that's totally true. But I would make one adjustment where they said it's the traditional uh, financial vehicle gone forever. Um, it's actually a much more archaic financial vehicle, which is essentially creates like a fiefdom where you've got people that a lot of people work for and now they own the homes and now you might be renting where you live and working for that company. Uh, that's essentially what like sharecropping was, you know, that that's, that's very dangerous. And so I don't, I don't think that it's necessarily the traditional gone forever. It's going back to a much more brutal period of financing like 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 feudalism which is worse yes it's going back to feudalism essentially oh god that doesn't sound good well no it's, and this is exactly how it worked and it's also important to remember that's sort of how like if you're going to talk about like reparations for black people in america this is like the biggest and best argument going for it is the fact how african americans once they were given land it was taken from them you know, either forcibly or financially, they were weaseled out of it. And so they didn't have that generational wealth. We got redlining too that allowed them to prop themselves up for years to come. So they had to do sharecropping. Mm -hmm. They had to do renting. They couldn't own it because powers to be wouldn't let them. Right. So it's, it's reminiscent of things like that, which I think everybody can agree is a pretty horrific situation to be in, no matter who you are. No, but that's Nash, kind of the point of capitalism is to get rid of those systems. That's, well, that's, that's my next, that's, before we move on, I do you want to ask that question? Isn't this free market capitalism? 
sort of yes but are they also yes. creating a, are they also creating a monopoly or is it not a mm. monopoly because it's not a monopoly because it's not one company doing it or one institution it's a handful of 200 that we saw in that research well here's the thing it isn't it isn't uh, free market capitalism if they are abusing the systems at b um i.e. the government systems, to get an extra leg on people without that finance. That is not free market capitalism. That's, you know, you're, that's, you're, it probably would be monopolistic. It's, it's hard. It's probably closer to some sort of oligarchy type system because you're, it, it's 100% an oligarchy if this is in coordination with the government. Mm-hmm. You know, both sides are talking to each other to have this be a plan. That's 100% yeah. an oligarchy. Yeah. But, probably dances on the line of some type of monopolistic behavior if you're just abusing the system like that. Because we don't have, that's important, that we don't have a totally free market capitalism. And I'm sure everybody's sort of aware of that. For those of you aren't, because we have regulations in place that protect people and human rights that we've all agreed to. So if you're abusing those laws to go against the exact reason they are put in place, then yeah, that's probably something altogether different. I wouldn't know how to say it off the tip of my, off the top of my head, but oligarchy is probably the closest. All right, so let's continue on with this thread. Thank you, Nash. That was, <laughs> that was a lot. No, Sorry. no, no. That was that was perfect. Make sure you cut that. Um, so, where does this position the average American in thirty years when it's a given that every new neighborhood is to be bought up by 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 uh bought up whole so they can be utilized as SFRs. Uh, which I believe is um, SFR is like something for rent. Sale for rent, I believe that's what it's called. Yeah. Uh, it positions them as peasants. Being poor can be being poor can be temporary condition bettered by upward mobility. In the U.S. and other nations, home ownership is often the first and most vital step. This can provide for gener- generational wealth and success, but but as permanent guaranteed renters, you're passing you're pissing away a lifelong equity. Uh, equity and a chance for mobility you just become a peasant home equity is the is the main financial element that middle class families use to build wealth and blackrock a federal reserve funded financial institute oh my god it's funded by the fed is buying up all the houses to make sure that young families can't build wealth that's right the federal reserve funded financial institute let that sink for a minute got it they're using your tax dollars to, oh my God. I forgot I put this in here. They're using tax dollars to fuck over the lower middle class and it's permanent. Not one present administration of bullshit. This is a fundamental reorganization of society. All right. So yeah, everything I just said is sort of... <laughs> Everything I just said is sort of put there in its own terms, especially the fact they recognize that this is creating peasantry because that's essentially how it existed, where a peasant is somebody that doesn't own land, but they would work for the Lord because only lords can own land. Right. Then they're exactly right. That's exactly the system they're creating. And, yeah, you're closer to an oligarchy if the government is helping this happen because you're essentially having the wealthy and powerful control the laws to their own benefits. The Fed Fed isn't a government organization, though. 
The Fed's an independent branch, the, independent entity of itself. It doesn't. It, the Fed isn't part of the government. The Federal Reserve. Yes, they work with the government, but they're not part of the government. How so? Do we need to fact check that? Do we need to Google that? How is the Federal Reserve not part of it? They work in ten in in in, in, in um. The Federal Reserve banks are not a part of the federal government, but they exist because of an act of Congress. When the Board of Governors is an independent government a- yes. agency, the Federal Reserve banks are set up like a private corporation. So they're not yes. part of the federal government. They exist because of an act of Congress. It's an independent government but agency. But the issue is the issue is receiving funding from the government. The government tells them to print money. Right? Federal Reserve. Yeah, because the Fed, the Fed prints. The, the Fed print. The Fed prints. The or, or the Fed calls for money to be printed. Are we talking? Are we, we talking? Just, about, are we talking about something we have no idea? <laughs> we just talked ourselves into stupidity, is what we did. Okay. So we've we, we've got basic systems of government. We just craft in our own minds about. All right. So the, the, the Fed's relationship with the government is confusing, but I do know the Fed is not part of the U.S. government. But they work hand-in-hand hand with the government. Yes. Yeah, okay. I know they work hand-in-hand. Hand. Oh, creating, creating a national banking system. I don't even know, I need which, a fucking nap. No, no, no. Creating a fe- uh, federal banking system, which is... Um, this is a bad reason of why having a federal banking system would be the case. Because of this exact thing. Okay. I think that was probably Andrew Jackson who didn't like that. And that's what got him on a $10 bill. Didn't, didn't he found the Fed? No, he founded something no, with no. Mary. That was uh, the founder of the Fed was, um, oh, God. World War One, that guy, Woodrow Wilson. Oh, that was way off. I believe he found it. Or no, no, was it Alexander Hamilton? Oh, Hamilton was the money guy, not Jackson. Or Jackson also the money guy. I don't know, Nash. You're the history major. Was, okay, yeah, it was 1913, so I think that would have been Wilson. Um, but I think Hamilton wanted a reserve. All right, so this, this is why we need a... So I need our engineer. Oh, God. So I need Luke to do these things. Hold on. <laughs> Let me read. <laughs> the Federal Reserve, the central bank of the United States, resides a nation with a safe, flexible, and stable monetary and financial system. <laughs> uh, Wait, one more time, Nash? Should we do that uh, again? <laughs> this is on the front page of their website. <laughs> the Federal Reserve, the central bank of the United States, provides the nation with a safe, flexible, and stable monetary and financial system. Yeah. Yeah, okay, it does. Right. <laughs> All right, Nash, are you ready to hear the other side of this argument? Are you ready to pick apart Vox for the next two pages of notes? 
<laughs> yeah, let's do that. <laughs> actually, I think it's Rent, renting is better because it's cheaper. Actually, I think it's, actually, I, think <laughs> okay, it's I think it's three pages. <laughs> it's three pages. Oh God! All right. So this is from Vox now. I'm not gonna lie, Nash. I was ready to dunk all over this, and I read this. I was like, okay, there's not. There's some valid points in here, but I think they're misguided. So let's get into it. The stock market is booming. That, that's that's how I feel when I read like most of Vox stuff. Because I used to read a lot of them, and I stopped because I was like, this doesn't seem like you're thinking a lot on it. Well, they started off by saying the stock market is booming. So there's their first mistake. Homeowners (laughs) have accumulated more than $1.5 trillion in equity since the COVID recession began. There's their second mistake. And personal savings are up for most higher-income households. There's their third mistake. (laughs) Enter stage right. Wall Street, and there's their fourth mistake. Everything about that opening paragraph is this wrong. Yo, fun fact. Um, I read this from a news article. Somebody Google it if you want to check. I forget off the top of my head. I read it a few days ago. How um, China got added more than 200 billionaires um, at the height of COVID. Wow. I was waiting for a butt there, but there's no butt. No, that's it. Well, see, here's the thing. China has, China actually now has more billionaires in the United States, but in the United States are the cumulative wealth of our billionaires is more than China. Our billionaires are worth more, but they have more billionaires. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, let's continue, Nash. We're, we're, We're almost over an hour here. It's important to understand that institutional investors pay it. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm actually going to read this. It's important to understand that institutional investors play a small role in the American housing market. While there are big firms for apartments and other multifamily housing units, there, tra- there traditionally hasn't been the same level of investment in a single family homes. Yield chasing investors have turned to real estate market because it has become a very profitable place to put your money. So traditionally they're not, but now they are. And that's the whole point. And the main reason it has become so profitable is the pre-existing housing shortage created by local governments and certain homeowners seeking to block new homes from being built, leading to a nearly 4 million home shortage nationwide. Now, if we wanted to go three hours, I was going to do a, 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 a sidebar into that study, but I just, I couldn't do it. I was doing like four or five hours of note-taking, and I just couldn't dive deep into it. So if you want to learn more, Google it, or find the Vox article, show notes in the description, of uh, the YouTube and Facebook videos. And follow us there, by the way. Give us a like, share, subscribe, hit that notification bell. Help us out. Comment in the comments, and we'll read them out loud on the show. You can partake in the conversation. Thank you very much. Um, continuing, investors go where the yield is. They are profit maximizers and force strong pressure to return large gains to shareholders. Want to stop them? Build more homes. Ensure that they cannot have a large market share and engage in predatory behavior and reduce the incentive for yield chases to further commodify the market. Yeah, Vox. I think it's much easier said than done when lumber prices aren't inflated and people aren't fucking broke from COVID. 
No, that's exactly, and this is exactly where the shortages come into play. When the prices of steel is up, when the prices of lumber is up, when gas prices are just now starting to go down, when there's a shortage of truckers and there's an overall shortage of workers, yeah, that's next to impossible because no independent person can, or family can afford to do that. But you know who can? multi-billion dollar uh, yeah, yeah hedge funds could do that if they wanted to equity but you firms. know what they'd rather do they'd rather buy the homes from people because they're already built it'd be a lot cheaper than to build them again yeah it's like i feel I, I, this whole a lot of this article i feel like vox is missing the point they're missing the they're missing the data of what's going on now and their counter arguments just aren't that good the idea that institutional investors are somehow largely to blame for the current housing market catastrophe is wrong and obscure and obscure the real problems. Housing prices have been skyrocketing due to historically low supply, low mortgage rates, and the largest generation in American history entering the market looking for starter homes. Um, many of the articles claim that institutional investors are driving up single-family home prices or competing with average home buyers rely on research by John Burns Real Estate Consulting. Uh, one even claimed that the investors are, quote, a main cause for the hot market, which is not what the John Burns research details. In fact, the report explicitly states that the U.S. is, quote, not in an investor-induced home price bubble today. Maybe not today, like today, today, June 21st. But maybe when a moratorium runs out in September, it will be. Or going into yeah. 2020, 2022, it will be. The report found that the share of total home sales that come from investor purchases have actually declined over the past year. And in its peak, again, over the past year, what about next year or this year? And even at its peak in 2013, when regular sales have bottomed out due to recession, it reached over, it only reached 29% in total of total sales. Last year, the firm estimates that investors make up about 20% of home of housing sales. That includes people buying second homes, vacation rentals, mom and pop landlords, and small investors flipping home home for profit. So again, historically, it hasn't been an issue. That's correct. That is correct. If you want to base your judgment based off past trends, you have nothing to worry about. Yeah. Who owns Vox? I don't know. I feel like they're very independent. Um, Vox, NBC Universal. Well, somebody, uh, obviously. NBC Universal. Mm. Why have we come to a point where I can't trust anybody but John Stossel? It's gotten to the point, Nash, where you can't you can't trust anybody who's owned by a corporate entity, because even if even if Vox truly, I, I believe Vox believes what they're saying. I really do. But even if they didn't. They can't talk shit on private equity firms because their people who own Vox are in bed with those firms or do business with those yeah. firms or it's bad business to talk shit about those firms. So take Vox with a grain of salt because they, they're incentivized not to tell you the truth. Especially, well, I think what we're going to highlight is for this topic. 
because they are stating things, but it's important to note that they're stating things from 2019, so before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, 2013, and we're going to get some much older dates going ahead. So that's probably the biggest thing to keep in mind. It's kind of like talking about population with a census from 40 years ago. Yeah. So research released earlier this year that found that institutional operators owned just 300,000 single-family units in 2019. Oh, good, 2019, that's totally relevant. For context, the researchers point out that roughly 15 million one-unit detached single-family rental homes. Uh, There are 15 million, so 300,000 out of 15 million. There are roughly 80 million detached single-family homes uh, in total in the U.S. Okay. A 2015 study found that large investors make up just 1-2% to of the all-single-family purchases from 2012 to 2014, while other investors make up 18-19%. They also found that institutional investors are more likely to purchase homes in neighborhoods, quote, where fewer residents can qualify for mortgage, end quote, while decreases, which decreases likelihood that they are competing with regular home buyers. It's possible that this trend has changed over the past couple years, or that it could change in the coming years as interest investors look at the gangbusters housing market and decide to get more involved. But for now, but at least right now, these appear to be very small players. Oh, you think, Vox, it's possible that it could change? You think? You well, just throw that in well, there towards I, the middle of the article? I don't know how they can say for right now when they don't have any numbers for right now. And they throw this chart in their article saying, hey, here is the data from the past few years. It goes, oh, actually, it goes up until, so this is bio demand for second homes continue to rise from October 2018 up until April 2021. Um, and the red line is second homes, and the gray line here is primary residence. Now, it doesn't really say who's buying these homes. Um, oh, here we go. Redfin's data shows that buyer demand for the second home increased nearly 178% from April 2020 to April 2021. It's possible that a good number of those investors' purchases come from second home buyers. Um, however, looking closely at certain submarkets, John Burns did find that very elevated investor activity in Naples, Florida, the group found that investor sales have risen 57% over the year. In Fort Walton, Florida, sales have gone have rose 65%. And in Flagstaff, Arizona, in Punta Gorda, Florida, these increases at 50% and above in, in investor sales. Again, this does not in necessarily mean institutional investors. They are pointing out that um, sales are on the rise, but they don't say who's buying them. Yeah. Now, I feel like they probably should. And the fact that they aren't needs to be a little suspicious, but. Well, well, I mean, here's the thing, because it's the way of where you're looking at where the numbers are coming from, because you could try to look at who owns those properties there. They're not looking at that. They're looking at how many of those properties have been bought. Yeah, but they don't tell you who bought not... them. Exactly. They're, they Because if they wanted to, they could find that out by going there and 
journalizing, journal, journalizing, um, journalizing, journal, journaling, journalizing journaling. a little bit. Journal, they could journal, journal. they could journal, you could they journal. Could journal a tidbit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, if they want to know, they could know exactly who bought them because it'd be pretty easy to decide. Okay, corporate entity bought this. Okay, this is clearly a home. A family of four lives here. You know, but um. No, they just looked at who bought them and tried not to track down the answer. I mean, that's not necessarily – I don't think that's bad reporting. Um, they have to ask it. I, I think it's – yeah, I think it's a little – yeah, exactly. It's one of two things. One, they have to ask it, or two, they didn't, and they don't want to tell you the results. Yeah, and I'm more likely to believe that they assumed the results and decided not to try to find it out. Yes, because they're not Which, actual again, journalists. This is my this this is my assumption. I could be wrong, but I feel like I'm not even a journalist. And I thought, hey, maybe if we uh, you know make some calls or just go and see who bought them, we'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. You can fly now. COVID's over. Uh, something tells me at Vox they're all wearing masks. Probably. Um, Laurie, so Laurie, <laughs> now we want to Laurie Goodman, who is the vice president for housing fi- housing finance policy at Urban Institute, and she explained that traditionally, into again, traditionally, it's a key word there. Traditionally, traditionally, institutional investors haven't competed with regular people trying to buy homes because their best investment is to buy a home that needs significant repairs. That would be, quote, very hard for an an owner-occupant to do, end quote. That works for large firms because they achieve economies of scale by hiring in-house construction and repair workers or bidding down the price by offering stable work to contractors for less for multiple homes. Quote, when an institutional investor needs 20000 or 30000 repairs, it would cost you or I 40000 to $50,000 to do the repairs if we knew that what needed to be done. She then added, additionally, it, it, it's really hard for homeowners to finance these repairs. That is where the real estate uh, comparative advantage is, and those are really the homes that they, that they do well and specialize in. In general, there aren't homes for, that homeowners are looking to buy. Institutional investors are actually competing with other types of investors like regular, uh, like regular people who make a living flipping properties. So what she's trying to say is they're competing with themselves, not with the home buyer. That may be true when home buyers are also buying homes. Yeah. And that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, it makes sense for the point she, you know, the point she brought up that makes total sense. If they want to buy a whole community that's a bit downtrodden, um, it'd be a lot easier for them. Whereas somebody who's a single home person, you know, just one family trying to do that, it'd be a lot harder for them. That makes a lot of, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Traditionally, that makes a lot of sense. And I, th- I think there's probably some of this going on right now because people, like it's 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 the lower middle class who can't buy home. Upper class Americans are buying homes. They they can do it. Yeah, They're not being competed with. Yeah, that's and the, to clarify, pointer. That's probably the issue with um, my sister having to buy a house because here in, in Nashville, 
Um, that is something that you see very frequently. It's, it's almost as if gentrification has been happening here for the last 20 years mm-hmm. where you'll see all the homes that were built in the seventies or the eighties or the nineties are getting bought out by a group of people or one person that's got a few million dollars. They'll buy like half a street redo, make the same like two, three story houses um, for that whole street. And then, you know, they wait for the other people that can't afford you know, the new property taxes and then buy their houses out. Yeah. I you, you stayed in one of those houses, Daffy, when you came. <laughs> that I did. It's a great house. Do you notice how all, well, do you notice how all those houses look the same? Yeah. Right. But that well, was probably one person who did that for the one that you rented. It wasn't a whole group of people, well, but they're all. That's not too uncommon in general. It doesn't like it in, in Massachusetts where yeah. I grew up, my, my hometown, right? Like there was this, the single family homes, they were all designed the exact same in, in a neighborhood or yeah. neighborhoods, right? Like you walk in, up the steps, you got a living room to the left, kitchen to the right, hallway, bathroom, bedrooms, right? Front door, there's the steps. When you walk in the front door, there's steps up and steps down. Steps down, basement, like family room to the left, hall room, bathrooms, office, whatever. That house was copied and pasted hundreds of times across Branching, Massachusetts. That doesn't mean the same person yeah, owned no, no, no. those houses. No, no, no. I'm not saying that either, but I'm saying you can tell it going on when you can compare. You know, you can tell that in the next three years, that whole street's going to be all the same of those new houses when half of them, when like a quarter of the houses are the new three-story type structures that you see compared to the old like classic townhomes that you'd see. Uh, It's very easy to compare because those people are invested and the growth of the city you have wealthier people coming in and buying them. Yeah. Yeah. All those my houses. friend, his, 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 yeah, my friend, his, his family, his house on his street is the last house that has uh, not been bought and changed like the others have. All right. So before we go on, Nash, I do want to make note of this Vox headline and sub headline. Are you ready for this? Yeah. I love it. Wall Street isn't to blame for the chaotic housing market. Subheadline, the boogeyman isn't who you want it to be. Uh, well, because that's the thing is I kind of get the tone, especially in the beginning, that they were kind of blaming um, middle-class property owners. Had they proven that though? <laughs> I mean, I, I would no, say I, don't, I would say I don't tra- think they have. traditionally, Wall Street isn't to blame for the chaotic housing market. <laughs> Better headline. No, no, exactly. But it, yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> no, and it really is because exactly like you say, they aren't sort of taking into effect everything that's going on. I know a few people around our age that have bought houses, but I know a lot more people that are our age that want to buy houses that can't. Yeah, my buddy Phil just bought a house. Shout out to Phil, uh, my buddy from high school. So I was shocked when he bought a house. Absolutely shocked. But he, he probably makes good money. He's an uh, engineer, so he probably makes really good money. Uh, I think he's an electrical engineer. He probably makes really good money. So anyway, neither here nor there. According to Bloomberg, <laughs> Invesco Real Estate is backing uh, mine mind management 
to spend up to $5 billion in order to buy 20,000 single-family rental homes in the U.S. in the next three years. Bloomberg also reported that another fund, one that manages Canadian pensions, is investing $700 million into single-family rentals. Business Insider reported that Redfin data showing investors spent a record $77 billion on home purchases in the last two quarters of 2020, the, that amounted to just 55,000 total homes and 39,000 single-family homes. Additionally, this included other types of investors that are not buying these homes to rent, but are buying them to fix up and sell. The fundamentals of uh, low supply houses, low mortgage rates, and the, ent- and the entry of millions of millennials into the housing market armed with higher proposal savings help explain most of why the housing market has earned over a control has has market has careened out of control in the past year. You want to help me out there, Nash? <laughs> what does all that mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. They're saying, you know, not a lot of houses got built. Okay. Um, and the, our generation is so big that that's why there aren't enough houses. And I feel like there are house enough houses or I feel like there are more houses that are renting than there are, than there have been. In fact, they're kind of avoiding that. Well, I don't know. I passed the expert. Well, let's go to our final chart. Uh, so states where single family home, uh, rental home companies own the most properties. You've got the states here. Um, according to the National Rental Rental Home Council, a single-family home rental lobbying group, quote, single-family rental home companies accounted for less than 0.14% of homes purchased, end quote, and just 0.09% of net homes if you count the fact that many single-family rental investors sold homes as well. But these fundamentals are, are also are why Institutional investors are likely to continue to enter these markets. They indicate that prices will continue to appear for a fee, for a, a foreseeable future if a less dramatic if if at a less dramatic rate than the past year has delivered. Uh, they have spurned the existence to quote build to rent market instead of supplying uh, simply buying up existing homes. Institutional investors are buying are building them so that they can rent them out directly, even though. Even though they aren't to blame for the current housing market calamities, it doesn't mean that it couldn't happen in the future. Thanks, Vox. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah, it's kind of bad when they keep having to reiterate that point. <laughs> like, it's not happening now, but it's possible. But it's it like, could. It's like we're, co- we're telling you it's not, but we're also going to cover our ass in case it does. So... They're, yeah, they're in, ca- trying- in case a, re- a report from the day that we release the story comes out. <laughs> yeah, they're trying to they're trying to talk out of both sides of the mouth. They're saying one one side more loudly. Yeah, it's like they're pushed. They're, again, they're pushing a narrative. So Most definitely, uh, the Vox wrap up on intentional investors. So the good. This is where it gets really good. Institutional investors could prove a permanent floor to the U.S. housing market, ensuring that there will always be some demand to hold up the critical industry from complete collapse. Quote, when the market slows down, 
there is a recession. Housing is super cyclical and institutional investors will come in and be buyers throughout that. That's from Rick Palacios, director of research at John Burns that he told Vox. Quote, they will, in our view, help support and help put a floor on home prices. If you're a homeowner, you may in the next recession say, I'm actually thankful for these groups. The entire economy suffers immensely when home prices bottom out. So if we have an institutional industry that will soften the, that blow, I think that is a good thing. Nash, you rebuttal. Um, well, what about the case where all these people are trying to buy homes? <laughs> and they and they can't compete with the and bids. They can't. <laughs> they can't. They can't compete with more than ha- like half of half. One and a half times what the house is worth. It kind yeah, it totally ignore it's like, <laughs> it's like oh so we'll saying, be so thankful when the economy crashes. Well it's like the people that are trying to buy homes that can't right now aren't happy about it. It's like, oh, the housing <laughs> houses will be more affordable unless they bid half, more than half of what they're worth. When one and a half times their worth. Yeah. It's like, do you not understand? It's like he doesn't understand or he's just pushing a narrative. Um, In some ways, it can be easier to regulate larger entities. There are formal agreements and lawyers familiar with the fair housing law and local tenant protections, and the government could audit hundreds of units en masse instead of trying to go small landlord by by small landlord, which would be extremely insufficient. Since renters on average are, are, are on average less wealthy than mortgage qualifying would-be homeowners, institutional investors might be creating more housing for lower wealth Americans. It, please explain that to me. Traditionally, there have been more single no again the word traditionally. Um, there have been no single family rentals in desirable neighborhoods, which has made it impossible for well-off people to live in them. The core, that could start to change. So, the other good thing is, well, the government could come in and start regulating. Not if they're in the if not if they're in the pocket of those same people buying the houses. Not if the people who are buying the houses bought the politicians. You just have to rely on the government coming to help. That's not bad. That's a good thing. So this opens the door for the government to be efficient. That door is going to stay closed. That, <laughs> traditionally, opens, traditionally, Nash, the government the is not efficient. Traditionally, the this government's not good at doing things. <laughs> this opens the door for the government to be efficient. Oh, tell me, how many countless doors are open then? Yeah. <laughs> like, how, many, how many doors have been presented the government is just ignored? In fact, they took a shit on a stoop. <laughs> Like Vox, that's that's really your sum up. The government gonna is gonna enforce more regulations with a Congress who sees eye to eye on everything. Well, their their whole thing is like it's not even saying the good right now. It's like, well, this could be good, you know. Like your this whole story is like it's just is past tense, you know. When they're talking about a current issue. 
Like that's the major issue with this. Yeah. They're not talking about the here and now. They just ignore it. It's it's like reading a story that was published in 2009 would have the same effect and the same information as this story right here. Well, Nash, at least they include the bad. Institutional investors' incentive to profit in return as much as possible to shareholders is the reason that that uh, to cut as many homeowners, to cut as many coins as possible. Yeah, you think? <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay. So, you think the institutional investors might cut corners? Might. And in the absence of government watchdogs, tenants would face much larger asymmetries of power than would the small landlords. Yeah, you think? <sighs> An army of lawyers and bureaucracy, for instance, could make it more difficult for tenants who have complaints or being serviced with unreasonable fees. Oh, you think? And if real estate prices continue to appreciate, that means the growing wealth will be concentrated in the hands of those corporations. If these homes were owner-occupied, they would concentrate in the hands of homeowners. I love it, Nash. Literally, in one, two, three, four paragraphs, they rebut their entire article, which was incredibly long, and they stuck it at the bottom where no one but me will read it. Of course they did. Of course, I stuck it at the bottom where anybody that read the first few pages was just going to be like, okay. It's not, it doesn't traditionally happen. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to ask Nash, how, how, (laughs) how, how can you have a headline of again, Wall Street isn't to blame for the chaotic housing market, but the end of the set at the end of your story, well, actually they could be. Yeah, that's what I don't get about this story. It doesn't... This is a bad... This is a bad story. (laughs) Because it doesn't actually focus on the present. No. And And that's what it's made... That's what it's... That's what it is is trying to imply in that title. And they use a lot of graphs, charts, and links to studies to try and make them seem more... um, Authoritative. Yeah, and that's... Actually, let me see this. That is... I don't know how the story is written in the present tense. (laughs) Well, it is. It was written... When was this thing written? I just took off the notes. Let me go back to my history. Watch it. Watch it was like written in like 2011. Uh, written Janu- uh, June 11th, 2021. So 10, 11 days ago. Oh. Oh. And they didn't really offer any new information. They just kind of yapped a bit. They, they pretty much just said, this hey... Is- Traditionally, this hasn't been a problem. It's not going to be a problem now, but hey, it might be. We don't know. 
uh, traditionally it has been a problem, but we didn't look into anything that's going on right now. So like, who like, knows? Traditionally like, it hasn't what? been a problem. <laughs> it might be a problem later. We don't know. We haven't looked at current trends. Vox. <laughs> Vox. Vox. See, that's the thing, because Vox does have some pretty interesting articles about stuff you really wouldn't. It's, Vox, I feel like most of the reasons I've read Vox articles, it's answers to questions I never asked. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, here, sometimes it'd be a good job, but you got to realize Vox. Yeah. Vox, Vox is very similar to that um, CNN method where just they're very biased towards the left. They're owned by a corporation and they push a narrative that's fed to them. Hey, I don't think I don't think you want to put them in the same boat as CNN. CNN's bad. Doing the same. Doing the they're in the same harbor. Too many people are watching those darn YouTubers. <laughs> That's CNN. That is that is true. CNN and Vox is like we're we're on YouTube too, guys. <laughs> we're on YouTube. Follow, like, and subscribe. We're, we're just you know who else is on YouTube. You know who else is on Twitch? You know who's on Facebook Us. and Twitter and Instagram? Us. American Minutes, ladies and gentlemen. American Minutes, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, this is wrapped up another episode of the American Minutes podcast, episode number nine. Meet your new landlord, Mr. C. Nash Moorer. He, he actually, <laughs> Nash, low-key, uh, spoiler Nash owns all these funds, and he's using his personal wealth to buy all these houses. So meet your new landlord, Nash Moorer. Nash, what do you say to your new tenants? Um, I am going to say that if that was true, um, I'd probably own less Hawaiian shirts. But I do like the Hawaiian shirt, Nash. How many, those, how many did you buy in Florida? Oh, I didn't buy any in Florida. I bought them all before Florida. I've honestly, ever since summer started, I've been slowly gathering Hawaiian shirts. And they're, as, as my brother put it, they're the fat man's body armor. Yeah, that's, um, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> they breathe incredibly well, and he's right. It's, it's formal, but casual and comfortable. All right, Nash. Well, I got, I'm not going to lie, buddy. Corporate meetings. I, 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 do, I do like these deep dives, even though we went in almost an hour and a half. But next week, I'm sure we'll be back to normal circumstances. But until then, we're off the clock.